You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this episode, we bring you part two of our fantastic discussion with Patrick Murray about the merits or lack thereof of value form theory. If you haven't heard part one yet, please click on that first and then come back and listen to this episode. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a few minutes, we'll get to our conversation with Patrick Murray. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss our position on some current events. So for our current events section today, we're going to talk about the position we've taken to the U.S. elections and specifically what our position is to the Democratic Party. And we're going to be doing this in response to a comment that we got from a regular listener, a youth based in the U.S., who wrote to us recently. Basically, he wrote in to us, it's not public, and then we responded. He responded to that, and we'll end this segment with our response to his uh, second intervention. He began by agreeing with us that Trump is a serious threat to liberal democracy, and he agreed with us that the electoral defeat of Trump needs to be followed by defeating Trumpism and by a process of Trumpification, as we've talked about. But he wrote that, quote, leaving this in the hands of the Democrats party would only lead to folly. Uh, he says that the Democrats are incapable of handling somebody like Trump. The Democrats fixate on procedure and norms, but like a typical uh, proto-fascist thug, Trump smugly demolishes those norms. And, you know, Trump is not just an aberration, contrary to the way most mainstream commentators and political actors portray Trump. There's a real continuity of Donald Trump with what has come before in America. And our listener also said that while we on this podcast and Marxist Humanist Initiative have noted the role played by Jill Stein voters, you know, Green Party voters, in helping Trump get elected in 2016. He says that he would reframe all of this to blame the Democratic Party, which failed to engage with and turn out enough voters to counteract the third party voters who are just always present. So some of the problem here might just be a lack of familiarity with some of our views. You know, we can't put forward the totality of all of our thinking on this topic in each podcast segment um, and maybe even stitching together all those segments doesn't give you the whole totality of the views that's just something that the the format of the podcast doesn't allow for but now it's probably an appropriate time for us to at least attempt to clarify our views I, I, I have to say that one of the things that attracted me to Marxist humanism was the fact that there's a real integrality of philosophy and politics Everything is really related to other parts of the theory and things uh, aren't just like glommed on and added on or knee-jerk responses or uncritical adoptions of perspectives. Nothing's taken for granted and everything's worked out philosophically. That doesn't mean that everything the two of us say in a podcast is the position of the organization, but usually we are trying to base our comments about politics in this Marxist-Humanist position and from this philosophical perspective. Yeah, so with regard to the Democratic Party, the listener uh, hearing current events segment in our last episode, I think got a misimpression of our attitude to the Democratic Party. Our 2018 Marxist humanist perspectives, which continue to be our perspectives, in them we solidarize with the leading edge of the resistance against the Democratic Party. We, we discussed the DAC issue and people confronting Pelosi. And uh, when we first talked about Trump uh, in our August 2016 uh, editorial, we said certain things about the Democratic Party that I just want to quote. Quote, Clinton and the rest of the Democratic Party are corrupt, self-interested, and cut off from and disdainful of working people and minorities. They have neither the will nor the ability to build the kind of mass movement that will be needed to crush Trumpism. This is no time to trust the Democrats. We cannot trust them to win the election. Much less can we trust them to continue 
continue to fight Trumpism, because Trumpism is likely to persist whether or not Trump wins the election. We foresee the need for protracted struggle against it. That struggle cannot rely on faith in the electoral process or bourgeois politicians and parties. They are always prepared to sell us out. We need a mass movement independent of capitalist interests and politics to fight Trump and Trumpism uh, on the ground. Uh, close quote. So that's what we said back in, in 2016. Yeah, and we should add that today when everyone is terrified about whether the U.S. will have a fair election, we have to say that social revolution may be needed to ensure a fair election. And we have said many times in this podcast that mass movements, you know, mass action of people is necessary to fight Trumpism all along. We have not <laughs> said that the, the electoral process itself is, is sufficient to defeat Trumpism. Multiple episodes, we've made that point. Probably the real point of disagreement that remains is when our listener wrote in and said that he would reframe our point that the vote for Jill Stein helped to uh, elect Trump in 2016. He would reframe frame that by blaming the Democratic Party, which didn't turn out enough voters to counteract the third party vote. You hear this all the time, right? This is like a right. real refrain from, from parts of the left. Right. So what he calls a reframing of our point is not a reframing of our point. It's it's, it's basically deflecting, diverting from, from our point. So what we did is we said to our listener at this point that it seems to us that he's denying the agency of the third party voters, like they're not responsible uh, for their own actions. And more importantly, though, we don't blame the Democratic Party for everything constantly because we take for granted the bourgeois party is going to bourgeois party. We're, we're not part of the Democratic Party. We don't have any influence over them. Uh, and we don't want to pander to people who are disenchanted with them. Why don't we want to pander to such people? Because the underlying attitude of such people is still to want some such party to be the salvation, rather than thinking of themselves and mass movements as, as being the salvation. That That's, I think, the real point of disagreement. Yeah. So our position has always been very different. As MHI wrote in the conclusion of an August 2016 editorial, quote, the special role of Marxist humanists in this struggle is to oppose the, quote, leftists who are pro-Trump, soft on Trump, or understanding of Trump. Trumpism. They need to be driven out of the left. As we said above, the left needs to stand for freedom and human rights for all once again, end quote. You know, there are other people out there who do, can and do criticize liberals and the Democratic Party or who appeal to never Trumpers in the interest of democracy. But we alone have the perspective of reclaiming the left as a force for freedom and human rights for all. If we don't make that perspective the focus, nobody will. That's what we said, and it's basically, it's not that we love the Democratic Party, but the role that Marxist humanism needs to play in the struggle against Trumpism is to challenge the left and to reclaim the left as a force for freedom and human rights. So our listener wrote back, all this has happened during the last couple of weeks, he wrote back that he doesn't have any desire to absolve the soft on Trump left from responsibility for its actions. But he says, look, when it comes to the third party voters, he's going to make an exception. And and whereas we said he seems to be denying their agency, our listener responded, fair enough. But then he continued that he would never ever be convinced to be mad at third party voters or to sneer or wag his finger at them. He agreed with us that bourgeois party is going to bourgeois party. But then he commented that, quote, you would at least expect the Democratic Party with its substantial resources to account for the persistent existence of third party voters and mobilize voters to counter their effect. And he concluded by saying, that although he knows he shouldn't expect the Democratic Party to face its own weakness, uh, he's much more willing to demand that it do so than he is willing to yell at people for voting for Jill Stein. I'm, I mean, I, my, my first response when I see this is he differentiates between the soft on Trump left and the third party voters as if they're different people, different different things. They actually are. I mean, the soft on Trump left are the, you know, like the accelerationists or the, the Chris Cotrone types or the, the so called anti-imperialists, your Green Party voters are, are coming from a different place of, you know, I'm, I'm never going to vote for the lesser evil and I'm going to express myself by means of my vote and that kind of a thing. They're, they're, they're a different kettle of fish. But you don't think those groups were still making that argument that Trump wasn't an existential threat? Right. To some extent, they did because they always pursue their line, which was Jill Stein's line. Well, yeah, I'm not going to be able to sleep at night if Trump is elected. But, you know, I'm not going to be able to sleep at night if uh, Hillary Clinton is elected either. 
Or like Kashama Sawant's Socialist Alternative Party, which endorsed Jill Stein after Bernie Sanders dropped out in 2016. And they ran articles in their paper saying Trump isn't really a fascist. He's just a typical whatever Republican politician. He's not really a fascist. I, I, I take your point. So it, it's, it's not actually that the soft on Trump left is one segment of people and the Green Party voters are a different segment. The Green Party voters are largely a subset of the soft on Trump left to the extent that they, at least to the extent that they endorsed what Jill Stein had to say, basically drawing a false equivalence between Trump and, and Clinton. Okay, so from a revolutionary perspective, it's a waste of time to constantly focus on and rail against the Democratic Party. As our listener, and we agree, bourgeois party is going to bourgeois party. Wishing the Democratic Party would become something that's not as futile. It's, a, it's very similar to left populist redistributionist politics, which focuses on wishing capitalism would become something it's not. Right. So given that this activity of constantly railing against the Democratic Party, blaming it for everything, just goes nowhere. It doesn't have any positive effects from a revolutionary perspective, but it's just wishful thinking. Okay. So what real functions does it play? I think there are two things. First of all, what it does, if we were to go down that road, we would be reduced to armchair radical politics, complaining about how things are when the point is to change them. Okay, that's not that's not a revolutionary perspective. You know, just complaining about the, the Democratic Party. It's like complaining about the weather. It's going to happen whether you complain about it or not. And secondly, the, the real function of constantly blaming the Democratic Party is to make people to the left of the Democratic Party feel good about themselves, morally superior or whatever, by putting all of the blame on the Democratic Party, you know, again, for not being something it isn't and is never going to be. And in the process, they absolve themselves of any responsibility for changing reality. So it's not just responsibility in the sense of blame you elected and you're in danger of reelecting them. It's responsibility that one has to change reality. So our listener concedes that putting all the blame on the Democratic Party denies third-party voters agency, but it actually does more than that. If we were to go down that road, we would be abetting these third-party voters' own efforts to absolve themselves uh, of responsibility for changing reality. Um, and that's just not our revolutionary perspective, and it's because of its non-revolutionary character, not because we have any love for or illusions about the Democratic Party, that we don't waste our times constantly railing against the Democratic Party. I mean, if this were John F. Kennedy here on the podcast, what would he say? He would say, well, he wouldn't say it because he was Democratic Party, but, uh, you know, kind of like his evil twin would say, ask not what the Democratic Party should do for the country when you know it's not going to do it. Ask what you yourself and mass movements should be doing for the country and for all of humanity. Yeah, so the point isn't to be to be mad at or sneer at or wag your finger at or yell at third-party voters. The point is just to ch challenge people to take personal responsibility for changing reality. And as part of that, to soberly assess the consequences of their actions. Will their actions contribute to the struggle for human freedom, or will their actions instead increase the chances that the kids will be locked in cages, that right-wing vigilantes will run amok while militarized goons attack the left, that a malignant narcissist will allow a coronavirus pandemic to spread unchecked and tank the economy, etc. Things look a certain way when you kind of glibly blame the Democratic Party, the liberals, the neoliberals, whenever things go wrong. But things look very different from a different perspective when you accept that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, part two of our discussion with Patrick Murray about value form theory. So where we left off in our conversation last episode, we were just getting into this issue of uh, causality, determination, what determines value and price, what are the forces that determine them, and when that determination takes place. 
So where we left off, Andrew was just saying. So so then the question gets into determination, uh, into causality. Is the exchange of the wheat with the gold what determines the price? Or is it rather that that is the price and it is determined prior to the exchange by uh, a social process and determinants underlying and so forth? That's the question. I agree completely. That's the question. And in my critique of exchange only, they have no answer to that. There, there's no, there's no explanation. It's just like there's no determinant of that. We agree on the quote that you, you cited earlier that it's determined by the socially necessary uh, abstract labor time. We, we agree on that. So the real disagreement is whether or not, and I'm not even sure some, some of the things you've said, I'm not sure that we disagree there either. What I'm saying is that considerations of demand, whether or not people actually want your product or want it at a certain price, enter into the determination of the value of the commodity. And that makes it a co-constitutive. What goes on in production in the narrow sense is not the only determinant. Uh, it's not the only thing that figures into what's socially necessary. I, I think we have to make a distinction between constitutive of value and determinative, or whatever the word is, of the magnitude of value and of price. Yes, exchange is, as a general social process, not the particular sale of this commodity, but exchange as a general social process is necessary for there to be values and prices. So it's constitutive of value price. And demand matters in terms of whether something is an object of utility, right? Uh, and therefore a use value, and therefore whether it has value at all, the object. But given that, given that we are talking about commodities, products that have value, the exclusive determinant of, in Marxist theory, the exclusive determinant of the magnitude of the commodity's value is the amount of labor that is socially necessary for its production, which, as we were talking about before, can, in certain senses, be influenced by demand. But only in very clear senses would I accept what I've just said, because it's liable to be misinterpreted. But Andrew, again, it seems to me you're saying, I'm, I'm saying there's two components of socially necessary when Marx is talking about whether or not labor is socially necessary. The one is has to do with production. What's the level of your technique in relationship to your, your competitors? I think we're in complete agreement on that. And that can be changing. Uh, I mean, the disagreement would be, I would be say that's changing how much potential value you would say changing the value. Okay, let's set that aside for the moment. And what I'm saying is that the second component that Marx has in the determination of what whether or not something's socially necessary is it's socially necessary only if people want it. So that's not a production question. That's a question of what people want and what they're willing to pay for when you put bring bring your goods to, to market. And that and, and then you say, well, what it means to be a commodity means that yeah there is demand for it it is socially useful well, well yeah if you if you say if you say that well then then we're in complete agreement the whole point is like why should you we can't assume that in real life I mean insofar as that is the case uh, that's true I'm going to read you this quote from page 202 a little farther into the money chapter where he says if the market cannot stomach the whole quantity of linen at the normal price of two shillings a, y a yard this proves that too great a portion of the total social labor time has been expended expended in the form of weaving. The effect is the same as if each weaver had expended more labor time on his particular product than was socially necessary. So what he's saying is a shortage of demand works the same way as you're producing below uh, the norm in terms of your production technique. Uh, to me, that quote just says, says it. I mean, it's just it's just like there's two components of socially no, necessary. No, no, no. You know, earlier you said something that I agree with, that there are two distinct senses of socially necessary. No, you here. said that. I didn't say that. But well, go ahead. You, you, well, oh, maybe I did. Okay, go yeah, ahead. I'm okay. Sorry. They, they go to two different issues. One is whether the commodity or the potential commodity or possible commodity is a commodity is socially necessary. And the other is, if that is the case, what is determining the magnitude, the ma amount of its value? And just, just the sentence on page 202, the effect is the same as if each individual weaver had expended more labor time on its particular product than was socially necessary. The same as if, as if, means that this is not the same case. Okay, so it's not the same case 
He is not saying that because there's no demand, the individual weaver expended more labor time on his particular product than was socially necessary, okay? And I know a lot of people have a problem with this, but two events are the same, not only if they have the same effect, they have to also have the same cause. You know, you get wet if it rains on you. And you get wet if your neighbor turns a garden hose on you. But it would be wrong to say that rain is the same thing as having a garden hose turned on you. So I think that's what we're dealing with is two separate kinds of events that have the same effect. And what's the same effect? The, the, the same effect is that some particular bits of whatever he's talking about. Weaving, right. Linen, yeah. Okay, so some of the linen does not have value, even though labor was expended to produce it. Some of that labor is not value producing. So that can be because there's not demand for the product, and that can be because more labor was expended than was socially necessary. Okay, I thought that's what I was saying. Sure. But what I'm saying is that this is not two components. This is two separate, distinct, at least, sets of conditions that produce the same effect. Right. I, I agree there. I mean, one has to do with what's going on, you know, in the immediate production process. The other has to do with whether or not when you take it to market, people want to buy it or not. Those, those, are, those are different. But the relevant point, I think, is what you just answered, which is the effect is the same. That's, that, that's so that value is being determined determined in part by the production conditions and whether or not your production technique is at the norm. And it's also being determined by whether or not there's a, a social demand for your product. And that's that's what I mean by co-constitutive value form theory. It's true we Right. And I would say, again, when I speak about the um, amount of labor that is socially necessary or the value being determined by the amount of labor that is socially necessary, I, I'm talking about the magnitude of value being determined exclusively by the amount of labor that's socially necessary for the production of the item. Yeah, that's what I mean by a production-only theory. Right. Nothing that you have said goes against that, okay? Give, given that the product is a commodity, and yet that's an, an important question, but we are talking about commodity production. So if the item is a use value, then it, it, it's a value, and the magnitude of its value in Marx's theory is exclusively determined by the amount of labor socially necessary for its production. What determines whether it is a use value depends partly on demand. Right. And if it doesn't have, if there's no demand, then it doesn't have social use value. And if it doesn't have use value, it doesn't have value. Correct. Okay. So social demand is a determinant of value. That's, that's my, that's my theory. Right. I mean, one, one can say that if one's very precise, but it's a really weak way of, of, of speaking because there are two issues. One is whether a product has value, is a value, and one, there's a distinct issue of what is determining the magnitude of value of those things that are values. Okay, so social need is relevant to one of those things and not the other. Uh, what's it relevant, rele relevant to? It, it's relevant to whether the item uh, is a use value. It is not. It is not. It is not relevant to the determination of the magnitude of its value. And I think that part of the problem might be confusion between not being a value or having value and having zero value. No, no. I mean, if if, if there's no demand for the item, it's not that it has a zero value. It, it is not a value. We're, we're talking about a whole other kind of animal. Yeah. I would, say, words, I would say if you produce something with a view towards selling it, you're producing it as a value, but if there's no demand, then the potential value you thought was there is never is never realized. But Andrew, you're reasoning in extremes that I think that we don't need to, because when in the quote we were looking at there, the effect is the same as if, you know, the weaver had expended more labor time than was socially necessary in this in the productive sense. It's, it's just like that. So if I'm selling, it may just mean that I don't get as much money. My, my commodity doesn't have as much value and I don't get as much money for it. Not that I get no money. So I think that, I mean, that's of course a possibility too, but this is also talking about, I mean, the basic point is he's saying that the social demand is a determinant of value. Uh, it's a different one than the one about production, but the effect is the same. It, it And it, it doesn't mean that it has to be zero value. It can just be less value. There's not as much demand as you thought. I mean, this is the very, very ordinary things and you, you can't get your price. So you bring your price down.
we can get into this. I, 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 I totally disagree with this interpretation, but my suggestion is that we move to questions that, that, that we've uh, discussed. Well, why don't we move forward to one of the other prepared questions? Uh, in Marxist theory, what is the relationship between the form of value and commodities' values? In particular, do commodities have values as such, or do they acquire their values only by being sold for money, the socially recognized form of value? Patrick? Okay, so the relation is the one I've been emphasizing from the beginning, the inseparability, which Marx emphasizes, the inseparability of the form of value from value. What's the form of value? Money. That's the that that's the conclusion of section three, Marx's investigation of the value form. So if you're talking about a product produced as a commodity with the intention of being sold, okay, before it's sold, it doesn't have form of value. It, so it's potential. And that leads us to the second question. Do they have values? Again, this goes to the, the subject of the realization. Again, a word that Marx uses repeatedly, that you're realizing the value. But re what you realize or actualize is a potential. It's just like, right, what do workers sell? They sell labor, power, labor capacity. They sell their potential for labor, to do labor. That potential is actualized when you go to work and you start working and you start doing your job. So do they have value? They acquire values. They become fully actualized as values uh, being sold for money. Yeah. This language is a little tricky because it's not as though, see, the, the exchange-only view doesn't have any theory of potential value, right? The exchange-only view is, oh, you acquire value simply in the moment of sale, okay? And that's why uh, I said earlier there's no determinants of that, okay? There's no real uh, determinant of that. Uh, my co-constitutive view is, no, commodities come to the market with potential value and the sale of the commodities, if they succeed succeed in selling, actualize that potential. So value is only actualized through the sale. Would you accept as a uh, an adequate rendering of what you've said that commodities only potentially have values or are values prior to sale? Yeah, you seem to, I'm not sure if I, uh, Andrew, if I get that distinction between they have potential value and they are they potentially potentially values. have value. They potentially have value. In other words, they might be sold for money, and if they are, then they are values. Uh, no, I would say they have potential value. Right. See, I, th this is what, when I say I don't know what, what this means, this is exactly what I don't understand. No, I, I don't know what it, mean, what it means to say that something has potential value if it does not mean that it potentially has value. Well, I mean, you, you can say also it potentially will prove itself to be value by being sold. But I don't know what, do you have a problem with potential in general? That's why I brought in the case of labor power. I mean, that just seems like it's a potential. It's No, I mean, yeah, acorn is potentially an oak tree. Yeah, yeah. I'm cool with so, all of that. But yeah. that's something that's real. In other words, that's something that's real that it brings to the market. The, the potential is something real. So things that don't, and that's, and what's determining that, and, and the whole question of the labor time in terms of the quantity of the potential value, that's the determinant, right? So it's not like you can just, there to, to realize, I mean, just look at the language of realization or actualization. What do you realize? You, you don't realize nothing. You realize a potential that is there. Uh, and I've, I've, I've commented on this problem of the words realization and, and actualization in, in prior episode uh, and in, in, in my paper, just for listeners' benefit. I, I think it's very problematic to translate the commercial term realization as actualization. I'm not sure why. I think really we're just talking about different English translations of Marx's German word, which I think is verwirklich. Uh, yes, but when he speaks about realization, that's not his term. Well, he's not writing in English. No, but he's not using that German term. What German term is he using for that gets something, translated as something realization? Something that I can't, that, something that I can't render too well because I don't speak German. But something like realisierung. Realisierung. Yeah. I give it in my my paper. But uh, what are you? Re what's being realized, Andrew? Whether it's actualized or realized, I, I don't frankly see a big issue there. My question would be, what is being realized or actualized? My answer is the potential value that that's there. Right, and if that does not mean that it is potentially a value and becomes an actual value by being sold, I I just don't understand what it means to have a potential value. I do understand what it means to say. It's potentially a value, but if that 
that's not what you mean, and you seem to indicate that it's not, I, I just don't know what it is that you do mean. But I think you want to draw the distinction because then you want to force this into the corner of exchange-only value form theory. What is it that you don't understand about potential value? That I mean, so you, you say, well, yeah, I mean, you have the potential to sell it at the price. So let's go back to the box of cereal on the shelf. I mean, I would say it has potential value, okay? A, a, a speck of dust in the store doesn't have potential value. And what, what is it that you mean by that? I mean, I understand that there is a distinction, but I would say the speck of dust is not potentially a value or actually a value, whereas the box of cereal is potentially a value according to a theory in which commodities acquire their actual value by being sold. But if, if, if it's the, not the case that you mean by potential value that the thing is potentially a value and will acquire its actual value by being sold, then I'm not sure what you mean that's not that. No, I think it does mean that. In other words, yeah, but potential is a thing. I mean, some things have this or that potential. So what I want to say is things have potential value and the magnitude of their potential value is based on the productive aspect of what determines socially necessary uh, abstract labor time. And so going back to the very first question, it does have a quantitative determination. Yeah. Many things don't have potential value. You were just saying something, Patrick, that I, I've been wanting to ask. Good. So in your understanding, Patrick, what are the determinants of the potential value? And are they different than the determinants of the actual value? So, okay, so remember, I'm going to go back to the idea of two determinants of what counts as socially necessary in Marx's sense. So one is the productive technique. So one is, are you producing at a level of productive power that's, you know, at the norm for your kind of product? Okay, so that would be a determ the social demand, social value and social demand for your and the other determinant. The social demand is a determinant of... The potential value or the actualized value, the realized value? Uh, certainly of the realized value. That's a good question. Um, well, like, and, you know, if you're not sure, like, what will be the implications of saying that they're both both these things that are determinants determinants of the potential and the realized value. Would that mean that the commodity already had its value and just it wasn't no, known? No, it wouldn't mean that. No, because we're not talking about value. We're talking about potential value still. So whatever answer you'd have to that wouldn't affect the basics of a co-constitutive view and the whole idea that value is potential. I mean, first of all, just to be clear, when we're talking about uh, co-constitutive value form theory, as you've said before, we're talking about two forces, the production side and also the demand side. Yeah. In, in terms of socially necessary, more broadly, you could say it's co-constitutive in the sense of circulation and production in the narrow sense are co-constitutive. Okay. So when it's potential, the potential value is this determinants are socially, socially necessary labor time. The realized value of the commodity is determined by socially necessary labor time and the structure of demand. Yeah, I, I think of that as a second determinant of what's socially necessary, right? But that's something that you that isn't a determinant of the potential value, only determinant of the realized value. Why would that matter? Because we're trying to figure out what you mean by potential value, right? Okay. Right? Okay. So and why you think that the commodity doesn't have an actual value before it's physically purchased by somebody. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would think of is like, what are the difference in the two magnitudes? If, if the second, the realized magnitude is different than the potential magnitude, then there must be a different force that's determining the realized magnitude. Different or additional. Different or additional. Is it just a further modification of value or is it somehow like canceling out the potential value, in which case you wonder why the potential value matters? You know, I think these are the kind of issues that are brought up and why I'm curious about what the exact claims are about the magnitude and what the forces are that determine the magnitude of these two points. Um. 
let's say that it does enter into potential value. That's to say sort of the going demand. And this might be a way of uh, relating to Andrew's point earlier that, you know, you have prices of things that are, you know, fluctuating maybe throughout the course of the day. They are in many cases. Okay. So suppose, suppose we say that. Now what? I'm sorry. That was a question. (laughs) Yeah. Not no. Okay. Suppose we say that. What? How does that affect the basic claim that social demand is a determinant of the value of commodities? That it's a way of. I mean, it's a further determinant of what's socially necessary. So, what's socially necessary has a, a determinant in terms of the production technique. It has a determinant in terms of social need or demand. Oh, uh, demand would probably be better. Would that be affected in any way? By the fact that prices are changing? No. If the answer to your question is, yeah, sort of the current state of demand could be a factor in determining quantitatively potential value. That was really your question. So let's let's say, yeah, okay. So then quantitatively, is the potential value equal to the realized value? Not necessarily. Even though they both have the same forces that are determining their magnitudes? But those forces are changing right up to the point of sale or liable to change. The question is this. At the moment when the commodity sells, is its potential value at that moment quantitatively equal to its actual value at that moment? Well, uh, first of all, of course, price isn't value, but let's set that aside for a minute. I mean, that price is not the value of the commodity, but let's bracket that for the moment. Um, yeah, if you're letting a demand be a factor in the determination of potential and you take that right up to the point of sale, then will the realized value be the same as the potential value? Well, it stopped being potential because it's been actualized or realized. Okay. But are the magnitudes the same, though? Yes, but Brendan, the point is, is that the same magnitude? Uh, this is a, this is a great question. I thank you for it. The question is, let's look back. So with that value, let's assume that there's not enough demand, okay? So will the selling price reflect the value as determined exclusively by the production considerations? What, how would you answer that at this point? Sorry, you're referring to the scenario that Andrew was talking about earlier in which demand is not sufficient to realize the socially average production condition, and so it selects from a more efficient producer? No, no. That's later. This is chapter three of volume one. Andrew was talking, and that's a very interesting stuff. I really like that, but it's different. This is just much more straightforward. This is the case of the linen, okay? The linen producers have produced too much linen. As Marx put it graphically, the market can't stomach it, okay? So what he says is the value of that linen will be less than if demand wasn't a problem and if the quantity of the value were determined solely by the production considerations that's the that's the that, point that's crucial me, for he me does not, he does not say he does not say that what he says is let's say that half of the the linen cannot be sold and let's say all of the linen is produced according to the amount of labor uh, that's socially necessary for its production but let's say that half of it cannot be sold. Then half of the pieces of linen that are on the market are not use values. It's not that they have zero value. They don't have value. Okay. The other half have their value as determined by the amount of labor that's socially necessary to produce them. Now, what the, the sellers might do is decide to say, well, instead of selling half of this at its full value and throwing away the rest, let's just sell all of it at half of the value. So the price would be half the value. But the, the fact is the matter is what they're selling for all else being equal is the total value as determined by production of those items that are values by virtue of being among other things use values no andrew what he's saying is that it works just like as if you were producing at a lower level of productivity than your competitors uh, which means that you're not producing as much value is determined by what's socially necessary it turns out that not all the labor in this case of producing too much linen that not all the labor uh, was socially necessary and therefore you have not produced all of the value that you would have based on a determination of the magnitude because of the, you know, relating to the production technique, you won't have produced that much value. That, that That's what he's saying. And that will be reflected in the price. You, you, you'll you have to sell it for a lower price. Well, you don't have to sell it for a lower price. 
they, they, they could, as they sometimes do, classic cases of plowing the pigs underground. They could sell the stuff that can sell at its full value uh, and get rid of the rest, or they could drop the price. The problem with your reading is fundamentally that it creates an avoidable internal inconsistency in Marx's text. So, so that the way you read it contradicts uh, the thing on page what, 129, where Marx says that the magnitude of the value is exclusively determined by the amount of labor necessary for its production, socially necessary for its production. What you've got then is Marx saying one thing in one place, another thing in another place that contradicts that. If that can at all be avoided, you know, norms of responsible interpretation tell us we should avoid going that way. Right, and I do, by bringing out the passage that we're talking about, where he says demand works the same way as that aspect of production. Andrew, we know as readers of the book that you can't say everything at once, you know, and not only that, but he has a very specific way of building up the book so that he introduces new concepts in a very systematic way. Right, I, I agree with that, but it's one thing to, to add or to enrich or whatever, it's another thing to contradict oneself. And he says, you know, on page 129, exclusively determines the magnitude. What is that? The amount of labor socially necessary for its production. And all I'm saying is whatever he says later, we should not, if we can avoid it, not interpret it in a way that contradicts that exclusive determination. That's all. I agree, but we can't also avoid what he actually says later. And I think that he's really just saying, I'm introducing another component. And he didn't need to. In other words, what he says there is true. Andrew, here's another way of looking at it. Certain things are true if you have a certain assumption, you're making a certain assumption. So let's say that is flatly true, and I would agree. That's flatly true, and I think that's how he's writing the book. If he's working under the assumption, which he does in much of the book, that, you know, supply and demand are in equilibrium, however you want to put that, that's not a factor, okay? But then there are many other places where he says, well, of course, that's not the case. And in fact, it's systematic not the case in capitalism, quite the contrary. So that then he'll go back to that and not work under that assumption and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I was When I said that, I was assuming that demand is not an issue. But I know uh, demand is an issue. And now let's think about it. And when he thinks about it, then he says, you know what? Lack of social demand works the same way. And this is just paraphrasing, really works the same way as if you were, you know, not at the, at, at the level of your competitors in terms of production critique. So I don't think he's contradicting himself. Your hermeneutic principle I accept, but I think this answers it. Well, when Marx says what exclusively determines the magnitude of values, the amount of labor socially necessary for its production, there is no discussion of supply and demand, their balance, their imbalance. Uh, it's not there explicitly, nor is it there implicitly at that point or before. Yet he makes a categorical statement what exclusively determines. And somebody would have to be a really piss-poor theorist to come out with a statement like that. That's the exclusive determination. And then, like, when you catch them on it, they say, oh, well, I mean, it exclusively determines if supply happens to equal demand. But, well, I don't really know what happens when supply doesn't equal demand. Well, then we got to talk about all kinds of other things. It, it's not honest, and it's bad theorization. I mean, Marx might not be the greatest theorist to ever live, but I, I don't think he was that bad. In just a moment, we will conclude this conversation, but first we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Hello, this is Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. 
Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. Well, in the interest of time, I think we should move on. In a previous podcast, Andrew argued that both the exchange-only value form theory and Patrick's uh, co-constitutive value form theory are incompatible with three specific arguments that Marx makes. So I'd like to go through each of these three arguments and see what your response is. The, the first one is Marx's demonstration that surplus value cannot arise in exchange, which requires Marx's premise that commodities have determinate values and prices before they are bought and sold. Uh, the second one is that some companies em employ their products as input into their own production. These inputs aren't bought and sold. Marx nevertheless held that they have value and are part of the company's capital. This implies that commodities have determinate values and prices before Marx's theorizing required that commodities and money had determinate values prior to exchange. So do you have thoughts about one or any of those arguments that Marx makes and, and, and how your co-constitutive value form theory can work with, within those arguments? Can I say a word? Uh, Patrick did respond uh, in some fashion uh, in his uh, response paper, uh, Avoiding Bad Abstractions. But what we did in one of our podcasts, uh, I replied to his responses. And so what I'm hoping for in particular is a rejoinder by Patrick and engagement with how we discussed it, how I responded on, on the podcast. I'll see what I can do uh, on that. So let's go to the first of those three. Maybe I should just say something about why I talk about bad abstractions. A bad abstraction is when you separate things that are inseparable. And that's really been my argument from the start today is that Marx says the substance, the magnitude, and the form of value are inseparable. So a bad abstraction is when you separate them. So that's really been the underlying theme here. Okay, let's go to the question. So I, in the podcast on that first question about surplus value, well, I don't think value arises solely in exchange. The question is, what is the source of value? Uh, where, where does surplus value come from? Andrew did a very nice job of kind of going through chapter five of volume one, Capital, and uh, kind of rehearsing Marx's arguments for why surplus value cannot be created in circulation. I, I don't disagree with that. I, I don't think value can be created in circulation in that sense. Uh, question is, what is the substance of value? Okay. And if you say value is created in, or in, let's focus on surplus value. If you say surplus value is created in circulation, that means value can be created without any labor, okay? Well, that speaks to the first of the three inseparable components of value in Marx's theory, namely the substance. What's the substance of value? So nothing in my theory goes against Marx's point that that abstract labor is the substance of value. Therefore, uh, surplus value can't be created in, in, in circulation because value Value, the substance of value is abstract labor, and the quantity is determined by the socially necessary labor time. And we've been over the disagreement over what whether socially necessary only encompasses production. That's what I call production-only theory of value or not. 
Yeah, the second point about employing their own products as inputs. Yeah, this is that, that's good. I mean, I don't think that many people have picked up on that passage. I this is something I've written about due to my interest in sort of subsumption of of things under various value categories under capital and so forth. So so Andrew's c- conclusion is that things must have determinate values and prices before they're bought and sold. Okay, this is the case of he gives the example of the farmer, right? You keep you hold out, you have your crop you hold 10% of the crop. Instead of selling all of your crop, you hold 10% to be used as seed corn, seed corn for the next year. And Marx argues that if you do that and you get your crop the next year, uh, the value of of the seed uh, corn that you never sold as seed corn, uh, you didn't buy it from yourself, you just kept it, that that value is transferred into the product of the next year's crop. That's right. I don't see a big problem. I would ask this question, maybe very timely now. Uh, so, so suppose that when I sell my crop, the first crop, and I hold back 10, 10%, suppose the price of seed at that time is $10 a bushel, okay? Is that necessarily what will be will be passed on the next time. What happens if my next crop fails? What happens to the value? If I sold it, then I've got $10 a bushel. If I sold 100 bushels, I've got $1,000, right? What happened to the value? Or what happens if the value of the seed crop goes down or up for that matter, but let's focus on down. Will the value from the year that, you know, kind of the selling price that the year before, is that what will determine the value in the next season? I don't think so. So in other words, I don't think it really, presents any problem for my theory, uh, the co-constitutive theory, which I think is Marx's theory. Yeah, I think in the in your discussion in the podcast, Andrew, you said, well, it never has to be sold. But that just takes us back around to the fundamental problem of whether or not value is already comp- actual before uh, the sale. Oh, my, my, my point was actually that in your response in the paper, you said, well, all of this is resolved because eventually down the road, there is a consumer who buys or does not buy the product in the market. And I said that in the case that Marx is considering here, uh, it's in the results of the media process of production, page 951-52 in the uh, first uh, volume of Capital, Penguin edition. In the case that Marx is considering, there is no eventual final consumer who buys any of this seed, you know, the product that becomes seed, that becomes product, that becomes seed. Uh, And then in the podcast, I gave an example of electric power companies that produce uh, electricity. They, they, They continue to produce and to consume in production their own electricity. So the attempt to resolve the issue by appealing to some body who buys the, the product in the market, it, it, it's not applicable. Andrew, what what happens? Let's take the power example. That's a nice one. What happens if there's a drastic demand, a lo- loss of demand for power? What's happening to the value of the retained power that, that that's being used internally? Well, it changes, and we agree with that. Does it does it go down? Yeah, well, yeah, presumably. Okay, that's uh, my point. The, 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 the value of a commodity is determined by the amount of labor socially necessary for its production. But beyond that, the as, as I understand Marx's theory about the, the value of constant capital and its transfer to the product, that depends on the price of, of means of production like electricity. So changes in the price of, means of, of the means of production will affect the amount of value that is transferred and therefore the value of the product and that can happen you know after the electricity is originally produced although I, I, that it's problematic in the case of electricity but in the case of grain you can easily see it yeah, but isn't that what I'm arguing? In other words, that that's my theory is, yes, I agree with uh, Marx on that, that the value is passed through, but which, uh, what value? And when is that, when is the value of that seed that was never sold as seed corn, when is that value actualized? Well, Not at the moment of the, at the end of the first harvest. Right. You can can't count, you can't count on, on that retaining its, its value and demand, changing demand conditions, I think you just said, will affect the value value of that. But that's my theory. So I don't see why this is any problem. Sure. But 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 the point is, demand is not the same thing as exchange. This grain is never bought and sold in the market. You know, the farmer produces it, puts it into the ground for the next harvest. There's more grain. He holds some plants that, etc., etc. So there is never this 
so-called process of validation in the market. This is this is this is this is what goes against value form uh, theory, as far as I can see. No, but the validation comes when the next when the next cycle is sold. But it's not going to be sold. Some of it will not be sold year after year. Some of the grain is held by the farmer and employed as capital in his. My theory say my theory would just say yeah. Some of it will continue on as a potential value. So you got it's this... just like anything else. In so the you theory. got this farmer who is again and again just producing potential value and accumulating it. Is it part of their capital? Is it not part of their capital? If they compute their rate of profit, does it count or does it not count? When they say, okay, so I got in the market $18,000 of profit and my capital, does it include or not include the, the capital that was held by them? Uh, those are among the kinds of questions I'm asking. Sure. Well, that's a little more particular, but I would think you'd say, well, I've got so much seed corn. Here's the going price of seed corn. So I've got, you know, just like you do inventory generally. But uh, again, that just takes us back to the, the basic point, which is, of course, you're pricing things all along. As I said, people price things before they produce them. Um, you know, people have business plans. They price things before they produce them. But it goes back to the idea that is earlier discussion. There's only one real price. Uh, that's, that's the selling price. That's correct. Okay. But the problem is this stuff does not sell in the market. And irrespective of the guesses that the farmer makes, my, my question is, does the farmer actually obtain some determinant rate of profit or only a rate of profit on potential capital, irrespective of, of whether that whether what they guess is correct or not. Well, I mean, if you're calculating your rate of profit, like I said, you would just give the seed corn. I mean, if you're in possession of seed corn for the next planting season and that seed corn has a, you know, a going price, you would calculate that. That would be part of your calculations. Yeah. And so, that, so that's actual capital. That's an actual capital investment. So for me, that means that that seed corn has potential value and that potential value may be realized. With respect to capital, let's say that the seed is counted as part of the farmer's capital. Is that actual capital or is the farmer figuring profit relative to potential capital? Well, capital is a certain kind of value. I would say it's potential. You'd probably just call it capital, but it's the value is potential. It's I mean that's no different from the whole discussion though, Andrew. I mean I, I don't I don't I guess I, I don't see a special problem here. I mean I think Well the, the, sp the special problem is that the farmer keeps doing this. The electric power company keeps doing this. And so not only is it a matter of figuring and knowing and guessing, but what you're saying is in terms of being that the electric power company does not obtain an actual rate of profit. The farmer does not obtain an actual rate of profit. Everything that goes on with them is all their potential rate of profit is 18%, whatever that might be. So Andrew, suppose, so you've calculated your rate of profit by pricing the seed corn before you plant it the next season, and there's a tornado and the seeds all ruined. So how about your, did, what, what happened to your rate of profit? So you planted the seed and then it gets ruined after planting? The seed, after planting, right? This is the whole yeah. scenario, right? So yeah. you've set aside some seed corn. Yeah. So you want to say, like, how do you calculate your rate of profit for that year? Well, I right. would say what you would do is you'd put a price on that seed corn based on the going prices and you'd calculate your rate of profit, including that. Oh, of course. We're agreed on what actually happens. The issue is whether the seed is a commodity, has value, whether it forms part of actual capital, whether therefore the farmer's rate of profit is an actual rate of profit or, or not. I mean, all kinds of conditions affect all kinds of things and they and they do it retrospectively as well. Okay. The point the point is that this stuff doesn't sell in the market. I'm saying although it never sells in the market, there's no eventual final consumer down the road. Mark says that, that is immaterial. It's still commodities that have value that become capital for the farmer. That, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. And I'm saying before it's sold. But it's no different from what I'm saying all along, Andrew, because I'm saying that from year to year, when the farmer has that seed corn prior to the next planting, the seed corn has potential value. That's no different. That things have potential value from year to year. Yeah. So, I mean, in other words, that's not a special problem. Well, just in the interest of time, I think we should move on to the last point, which was about the quantity theory of money and whether there is any way that your co-constitutive understanding of value form theory can work with the quantity theory of money. 
Yeah, I mean, it's probably along the same lines as the other responses on three points, maybe especially to the first one. I mean, first of all, Andrew wrote, as far as I'm aware, no value form theorist has taken a stand on the quantity theory of money. Well, I mean, probably the person most identified with value form theory, Hans Georg Bachhaus, this is one of the main things he talks about, the false theory of quantity theory. Martha Campbell has written on that, also from, I would say, a co-constitutive value form point of view. So, but that's kind of an aside, not, not really to the point. I guess I just don't think that having determinate values and prices prior to exchange is is really the issue. And that's what I said in the paper. And again, it goes back to the first answer. Yes, circulation, value is not created in circulation. Circulation does not add quantitatively to value. You know, Andrew cited that thing about capital cannot arise from circulation. That's in Marx. And he follows it up with this. And it is equally impossible for it to arise apart from circulation. That's what I mean by bad abstraction. In other words, if you think that you have value, you have capital independent of circulation, that's the bad abstraction. Marx writes, it must have its origin both in circulation and not in circulation. That kind of sounds like co-constitutive to me. So the point is, the real problem is, I, I think really, what's the substance of value? And the answer to that is abstract labor. So I, I think Andrew is right. And, and again, going back to the question of the two forms, when Andrew, you addressed that earlier, you said what you said in earlier podcasts, which is basically like, I see the distinction. But then you say, my form, the co-constitutive, collapses into the other. So really, there's just two different names for the same thing. If that were the case, we would be very, you know, we, I think, be pretty much entirely on the same page. Uh, and, and I think this criticism, this third one about the quantity theory, yeah, I think an exchange-only value form theory does have a problem with that. But I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. One, I think, needs to distinguish between circulation as a general social condition and sale of the product. And what Marx says in the passage that Patrick just alluded to is when he talks about the production of surplus value, the transformation of money into capital, this is page 302 of the Penguin edition of volume one of Capital. He says, this both takes place and does not take place in the sphere of circulation. It takes place through the mediation of circulation because it is conditioned by the purchase of labor power in the market. Note that that has nothing to do with the sale of the commodity that emerges. It's before that. And then he says it does not take place in circulation because what happens there in circulation is only an introduction to the valorization process, which is entirely confined to the sphere of production. So this could sound like you know, co-constitutive value form theory where everything ultimately depends on the sale of the product, but only if you truncate what you read. With respect to, in particular, Patrick's response about surplus value rising in exchange or not, and with respect to the quantity theory of money, what I think he's trying to do is give an independent argument to arrive at Marx's conclusion. I don't know whether it works. I suspect that it doesn't. But whether or not it works, that's not my point. My point is that to have an adequate interpretation of Marx's theory, one has to be able to, using one's interpretation, replicate his argumentation and arrive at the same results. And I do not see any way, and nothing I've heard helps me see, that you can get Marx's results by means of his argumentation. Not just get the results by some external, different argument, but according to his way of arguing the matter, I do not see that you can do it without employing his premise that commodities have determinate prices and values before they in enter into the market. And then if they sell at a different price... What's their price? Well, in, in Marx's theory of the determination of aggregate price against the quantity theory of money, he's saying that does not happen. He's saying the quantity of money for which these, you know, aggregate of things exchanges is the quantity that is necessary to realize the sum of the prices determined before the commodities went to market. And he says the quantity theory of money was based on the absurd hypothesis that there was no such thing. There was no such determination of price prior to them entering the market. Right. So we're back to the whole, whatever price I put on things will be the selling price. 
No, it's not the price that somebody puts on things. It's not, it's not a matter of price setting. It's the socially determined price that depends on a variety of conditions, what are called in economics determinants of supply and demand. And, and you can talk about that partly in terms of socially necessary labor time needed to produce the commodity and a bunch of other things. Okay, they are the determinants of the price of any individual item. They are the determinants of the sum of the prices to be realized. And Marx is saying the amount of money that enters in circulation and exchanges for them is just the right amount needed. The rest of the money just is kept in banks or whatever. Right. So the point is that commodities, I would say commodities that sell, prove themselves to be values. They actualize their potential value. And the quantity theory has no place for that. See, for me, the, that, that's what I meant by saying the important thing is, is really that commodities are values, not that commodities are values before they're sold, which to me involves the bad abstraction of stripping the form of the commodity off of the magnitude. That seems to me that's what you're doing time and again. And that's what Marx from the very beginning of the book said, don't do that throughout. I mean, I, I don't I don't know, you say truncated, but I mean, when, you, when I look at a passage like capital must have its origin both in circulation and not in circulation, it seems to me when you say capital has its origin, you're saying, you're saying essentially capital has its origin not in circulation, in production. That's what I call production only. And I think from what I can tell, that's your view, although certain things you say make me think maybe we're, we're in agreement. But I think you're the one who's truncating that kind of passage. I'm, I'm just reading Marx. I mean, you're saying, no, capital has its origin only outside of circulation. No, you, 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 need, you need labor power that is exploited, and the labor power is generally purchased in a market. So that's a precondition. That's what Marx is saying. Circulation is a precondition, but the actual creation of value is entirely confined to the sphere of production. Well, obviously, we could... I think we could talk about this for like five episodes, but at some point we need to bring this conversation to a close. No, that's good. I think we can. I, we, we've definitely covered a lot of the issues and gotten a lot of back and forth on all of them. We, we have. I think, I, I think it's good. Yeah. You know, hopefully listeners will keep up the conversation. We'll have some dialogue in the comment sections of the episode. But thank you so much, Patrick, for being on the podcast today. I think this was a really unique event, this conversation. Yes, thank you very much. It is actually rare to uh, have somebody who's willing to engage uh, on these issues, you know, not just peddle their own view. And uh, you've now done that twice, both in writing about what, nine years ago uh, and now uh, again on the podcast. And uh, I'm very appreciative. Well, th thank you. And thank you both very much for the opportunity to, to come on and talk about some of these things. <laughs> they, they do. Uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of exciting topics. Well, that exit music means it's time for us to end this episode. You've been listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. For more episodes, please visit marxishumanistinitiative.org. You can read lots more information about these topics on the website and participate in the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like the podcast, please do subscribe. Subscribe to the RSS feed. Leave us a comment. Share it with your friends and enemies. And we will see you here next time.